listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Everyone else, please take your Bible and turn with me to Judges chapter 9. This morning, we are going to see how things go from bad to worse, all right? And I say that knowing full well that some of you hear that and you're just inside. You're like, yes, yes, I love this. You listen to true crime podcasts. You love a good tragedy. I mean, your favorite Halloween, your Halloween's probably your favorite holiday. Uh, you know who you are, right? You just kind of like that kind of stuff. There's others in here who have probably been waiting for this message ever since you heard that we were going to do a series in Judges. And you probably know more than you need to know about Abimelech and Jephthah, uh, way more than anyone really needs to know. And you're just like, how is he going to handle, handle this one? Um, some people are like that. I get it. We're, you're welcome here, too. <laughs> others of us are somewhere in between. We're pretty indifferent. And you're not concerned about things going from bad to worse, because you know what? I can handle it. I'll, I'll fix it. I can handle it. And then there's some of us who hear this, and it's not so great, because you feel like you're experiencing that right now. You, your life feels like it's going from bad to worse right now. You're suffering, and you came here to hear something positive and encouraging, and now the pastor's saying, turn to Judges 9, and it just sounds dark. You know, like, oh, great, this is not what I came here to hear. Maybe, though, you are here because you're just hungry to know God and to hear from God. And that's where I want us all to be. I want us to all lay aside our, our preconceived ideas about the text, you know, lay aside all of our conceptions of what's really going on just in our little world. And I want you to be hungry to hear from God. Because I didn't choose this particular passage today. This wouldn't be one of the, the ones on the top of my list, not even close, to preach from Judges 9 through 12. There's a lot of amazing passages of Scripture. And this is as dark and as gruesome as it gets. And I know I've been saying that for a while in Judges, but it just keeps getting worse, okay? But here's where we're at. And God is going to use this because nothing is in the scripture for just to fill space. Of course not. Like God has, has preserved this. He has recorded this so that you can hear from him and so that your heart can be challenged today. So we're not going to read all the verses, of course not, in these four chapters. But there are a lot of horrible things going on in this text. And the question that we're going to answer is, how do things actually go from bad to worse? And the simple answer is, people reject God, right? We've, we've seen that already in this series. They don't listen to God. They practically forget who God is. They go their own way. They do what is right in their own eyes, and then they suffer. I think everyone in this room probably would agree with something pretty close to that. Even people who don't go to church would nod their head like, yeah, you, you be selfish, you do your thing, you reject any kind of 
deity in your life at all and you don't think about your neighbor, well, yeah, things are going to go very wrong, right? We can all shake our head, wag our finger at that. Too bad, so sad. People can just be so awful. But in the sermon today, I want to point out three specific ways that it went from bad to worse. How things devolved into hell on earth. And if you've ever felt like your world was going from bad to worse, I want you to step back and I want you to analyze these three things. If you're like me and you never want your life to devolve into hell on earth, well then there's three things that you need to proactively be on the lookout for in your own life that we're going to see in Judges 9 through 12. So look with me with the first, at the first six verses of Judges chapter 9. And we will begin right there. Judges 9, 1 through 6. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also, that I am your bone and your flesh. Now, for those of you who were here last week, you will recall that Jerubbabel was another name for Gideon. This is uh, one of Gideon's sons. And um, this is from the mother who was a concubine of Gideon. We're going to talk more about that. But verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Belbereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Orpha and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, all Beth Melo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. I told you this was going to get dark, and we just started Judges 9, okay? And off we go. You can already tell where this is headed. And we're going to definitely talk more about Abimelech in the next point. But before we go there, let's just stop and think about the leaders of Shechem, and what they allowed to happen. How do things go from bad to worse? Well, number one, weak leadership. Weak leadership. We have hypocritical, careless leaders. And I mentioned this last week, but you could really start this, and you could go back to Judges chapter 8, verse 33, because as soon as Gideon died, the people went back into idolatry. That's not the sign of a very good leader, Right? The second you're off the scene, everybody falls back into the worst scenario possible. Gideon did not leave Israel in good hands. And even though he refused to be king in word, we read that verse last week. At the same time, he acted just like a king. He had multiple wives. He had 70 sons here. He even had one son with a concubine named Abimelech, which I just talked about. Abimelech's name means my father is king. Now, we're going to talk about this madman in the next point, but something went terribly wrong with the parenting of Abimelech, obviously. 
So Gideon says out of one side of his mouth, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you in chapter 8, verse 23. Yet in reality, he's hypocritical because he's living like a king. And right here is where a lot of things start to go wrong. When the spiritual leadership builds their own platform and they take advantage of people, people suffer. The society goes downhill. And that still happens today. It's always a threat. Any leader can fall into this, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a small business owner. It's very easy to use the position of power that you have, the place of leadership, not to serve and honor God, not to lift up and to pour into people, but instead to win influence and honor for yourself. Gideon had a mental grasp of the doctrine of God's grace and rule, and he could verbalize it out of his mouth most of the time in certain situations. But in his heart, there was a huge gap between what he said and what he believed and what the motives of his heart actually poured forth into the actions of his hands. So Gideon's mistake was a failure to live out what he knew to be true, and it had devastating consequences on those who followed after him. But we, in the series, have always been putting ourselves in the dark story, right? So you have to just not look at Gideon and these terrible leaders of Shechem, but just think about it yourself. Can you fall into this track, uh, th this trap? Excuse me. You don't have to have an R or a D in front of your name to be a hypocritical leader. But when leaders are self-serving and when leaders use people, people suffer. And before we go any further, I just want to stop right here and say, aren't you glad Jesus isn't this way? Our Savior Jesus Christ, when he was tempted by Satan to have all the kingdoms of this world, Jesus refused. He denied that. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now let's turn our attention away from Gideon to the leaders of Shechem. You may be wondering a little bit more about these guys. Like, who are these guys? Like, what are they doing, right? First of all, Shechem was a place of spiritual significance to the nation of Israel. Shechem was the very first place that Abram was called and promised to have the land. That was at, that was at Shechem. Um, it was the first place where there was an altar built in worship of the Lord all the way back in Genesis 12. And it was the first place where Abram's descendants gathered to worship the Lord after they crossed into the land under Joshua in Joshua chapter 8. So Shechem sat at the base of these two giant mountains. It was a beautiful area. And historically, it was one of the key places in the spiritual life of Israel. So you could say it's like the thermometer of the heart of Israel. What's going on in Shechem, it's like this, the spiritual capital, so to speak. What's going on there is a reflection of what's going on in the entire country, the entire nation. And in Judges chapter 9 here, Abimelech doing this with the leaders of Shechem, it would be the same thing as like the leaders of America going to Gettysburg and deciding to reinstitute slavery. It would be like going to Montgomery, Alabama and deciding that the leaders, the leaders of America deciding that we're going to reinstate segregation. 
It's like, this is, what is going on in Shechem? Are you kidding me? This is not happening right now. But he kills 70 of his brothers on one stone. And every other leader up to this point in Judges had been appointed by God. Things are going from bad to worse right now, remember? Not so here. This is a raw power grab. And the leaders of Shechem were cowards to just stand by and let it happen. They were so corrupt, pragmatic, or lazy. Pick one of those three qualities, maybe all three of them, I don't know. But they just let it happen. These were men with no character, men with no spine, men without chests, as C.S. Lewis would call it. Where was their passion? Where was their drive to actually protect people and uphold what God wanted? It wasn't there. This is always a sign of weak leadership. You've probably heard the quote, evil can only prevail when good men do nothing. That's exactly what's going on here. The leaders of Shechem are gutless cowards, and they're going to pay the ultimate price. We're going to get there. But look at verse 7 with me. Judges 9, verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, remember Jotham was the one brother who escaped. He was the little brother who somehow didn't die, didn't get killed. And he went to his father's, excuse me, verse, uh, verse 7. And when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which goods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come out and take refuge in my shade. What are they talking about? The bramble thornbush doesn't provide any shade at all, right? But it's cocky enough to think that it can. If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come out and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king. What? What? You see how messed up this is? And if you have dealt with well with Zerubbabel in his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative." If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out and devour the, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled into Bear and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. Rough scene. Remember what Jotham said about that, though. No one steps up. No one wants to serve. So in dereliction of duty, they pass the buck to someone with evil, self-glorious 
motives, evil agenda. Now, we've, now, before we actually just park here and just put all the blame on the leaders of Shechem, I want to ask you to put yourself in this dark story again. There's a lesson here on choosing a leader because we are far too easily impressed by qualities that are completely unimportant to God. And furthermore, we can far too easily be swayed by pragmatic arguments. God makes it very clear. A nation will get the kind of leader that they deserve. He allows you to choose your leader. And we often get what we deserve. Sometimes we get grace and we get what we don't deserve. We get a leader that we had no business getting and they turn things around. But more often than not, we make our bed and we have to sleep in it. But God does not prioritize popularity, humor, academic intelligence. As a matter of fact, in our day, if everyone is just glowing over someone and falling over someone in the media, that's probably a good, a good actual um, wake-up call to look a little closer because that, probably, that person probably isn't that great. If everybody's falling over them, don't be fooled. And that's not a modern-day phenomenon either. That's been going on for a long time. But what kind of leaders should you be seeking? Well, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, right? Character is what matters. And Abimelech weaseled his way in for all the wrong motives, and the leaders laid down, and they got what they asked for. This is the first way that things devolve into hell on earth. Here's the second reason why things go from bad to worse. Point number two, selfish ambition. Now we're going to talk about Abimelech. We need to talk about this guy a little more. What made him so evil? We just talked about how this wicked person was allowed to get into power, but selfish ambition drives the worst people, and it is the root of this tragedy. Now, ambition is a good thing. Of course it is. If it's used for noble causes, if it's for noble causes. Having a passion for God's glory, having a passion to, to love other people because Jesus loved me, wow, that changes the world for good. That, that takes things and, and restores things and renews things. When we do that, we're being in the hands and feet of Christ. That's worshipful, it's honorable. Everything is lifted up. People receive joy and peace when that happens. When we're passionate about Jesus and we are selfless and we serve others and we count others more significant than ourselves, like we just read in Philippians 2 at the beginning of the service, everyone wins. But with selfish ambition, everyone suffers. So let me define selfish ambition. It's a growing desire to build your own kingdom for selfish glory. The burning desire to build your kingdom for your own selfish glory. An ambition always pursues what it prizes. Whether it's academics or art or sports, ambition is prioritizing something so much that you're willing to put in time and effort to improving yourself and sacrificing yourself for it. And yes, in its proper place, it's, it makes the world a much better place. The leaders of Shechem didn't have any ambition at all. They were pragmatic, lazy, apathetic. They rolled over and let someone else grab power. 
And if your ambition is centered on you, in the end, you will fall apart. So let's take a closer look at Abimelech. Because we're going to see selfish ambition from this man. He wanted power more than anything else. And he would do whatever it took to get that power. But as we do this, I want you to also check your own heart to see if you have any of these same selfish seeds of ambition in your own life. So here's how you identify selfish ambition. First way is you view people as pawns to be used for your own selfish glory. We already read these verses, but in Abimelech's conspiracy to take over, he pays off worthless fellows to speak highly of him. It was a horrible scene, right? He takes the he takes the bail money, like this idle money. He pays these people off. They get in people's ears. Oh, Abimelech, he's so great. So he, he's manipulating the whole thing, manipulating people, doing whatever he can do to get what he wants. And he's driven by selfish ambition. Now, I know everybody's different, right? Everybody's different. Everybody is wired differently. And there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. Um, some people are peacemakers. They want to avoid conflicts at all costs, right? Some people are helpers. They just, won't, they just love to serve, naturally. That's, that's their natural bent. Others are independent thinkers. Others are artistic and unique, and they don't want anybody to be like them. They, they love being different. Uh, some people love just having a great time, and it's all about how much fun can we have. Some people love controversy, and they like to argue and just shoot holes through things. And, and point out all the things that are wrong in the world. Some people are achievers, and they just want to be the best and do the best and get things done, okay? That's the kind of person I am, like at, at, at the root of my personality. I'm one of those people who wants to just do it well and do it better and do it better again, and I want to be the best. Like, that's, that's naturally how I'm wired. So I know very well how it is to, to battle selfish ambition. I'm an achiever like that. People who are wired like me can accomplish big things and difficult things. They can work hard. They can easily work too hard. And if they aren't careful, they can bend the rules and run over people and even use people to get a step up. So I know this about my flesh. And by God's grace, Christ has changed a lot about me because I've given my heart to him. And I'm still a work in progress. But, I, but I've identified that. And I've taken that to the Lord. So I can speak from experience. Selfish ambition is driven by the thought, why shouldn't it be me? They're not doing it well enough. I can do it better. Selfish ambition can get you pretty far. You can, it can make you a lot of money. It can buy you temporary happiness. It can get you in a place of power. Absolutely. But it always comes with a hitch. Because the second element of this is you seek to destroy anyone who threatens to undermine your selfish glory. The leaders at Shechem eventually turn on him. Of course they do. So they hire this man named Gael to oust him in ambush, and Abimelech fights back. And what we have in verses 22 through 49 is just a bloody civil war. 
It's vicious. It's nasty. Uh, I want to I just read a part of this battle. Look at verse 42. We're just going to dive into the heat of the battle. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. And he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. And Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt. And when all the leaders of the, ta- leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elberth. Elbereth. And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, and he and the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Horrible scene again. Here's a question for you. Thankfully, I know none of us in here are killing thousands of people and burning down a tower, right? Like we're not doing that. Praise God. Thank, thank the Lord. But let's insert yourself into the dark story. Are you driven by selfish ambition that's going to lead you to do whatever it takes to hold on to your position of power? A, a good way to really be honest with yourself and assess that in your own heart is to ask, How many relationships do I have in my life that are long-lasting? How many long-lasting relationships do I have with people? Or in my relationship with people, do they eventually just always burn out? Do they burn out and it's on to the next scene? And on to the next group of people? Or are they long-lasting? I know people move. Life happens, right? Like, there's a big difference between relationships that are naturally running their course and, and you don't have the same proximity, you don't have the same time in this area of your life. That's, of course, going to be a component to what I'm talking about. We can all, every single one of us in this room can only have so many deep relationships. Like, we don't have the capacity to have un- endless deep relationships with people. But it's so sweet to have long-term relationships where you can pick up the phone and you can talk to someone, an old friend, and in your relationship with them, like, it's grown deeper and stronger over time, where you can challenge them, they can speak truth into you. That's a valuable thing to have that a lot of people never get because they never put themselves in a position for that. They never put themselves in a church or, or, or a community of Christ where they can actually pour into and be poured into. But ask yourself, if you don't, if you don't have close relationships with other people, Okay, we could step aside for a second and even ask a couple other questions. Why is that? Is it because I never put myself out there in the first place? Is it because I haven't valued it enough? I'm too busy with all these other things going on in my life that I I actually haven't prioritized this? That's the truth a lot of the cases. Is it because I didn't value the relationship enough to sacrifice myself for it? Or here's here's where we're really in this context. Is it because I view people as a stepping stone to get where I want to go? 
And that sounds really cold. No one wanna, would want to ever admit that out loud. But it's way more common than we care to admit. We use that person as a stepping stone to get where we want to go. Here's the truth. If you're not viewing people as souls to love and humans that are, that are made in the image of God, that you can actually reflect the glory of God and you can minister to them, if you don't look at it that way, the only other way to look at people is, how are they helping me? You see that? And a lot of people look at their relationships that way. What is this person doing for me? And if they're not doing something great for me, I really don't need, I don't really have time for them. That doesn't create good community. That doesn't create a good church, right? What creates value and worth and, and, and actual building and pouring into and growth in relationships is when you look at other people as someone made in the image of God that I can show God's love to, not just what I can receive from them. What if a coach in a sport looked at their players this way? If a coach looks at their players, how are you advancing me? <laughs> it's not a good coach, right? I mean, they'll burn their players out, maybe win some games. Eventually, their players are going to be over this guy or this, this woman, right? If it's all about how are you going to perform and get good and do it perfectly, otherwise you're on the bench because we have to win, because I have to go to the next level, you're going to be a terrible coach, and you're definitely not going to last long. Good coaches actually say, hey, I want to pour into this player. I want to build their character. I want to help them develop as a human being. And then as we build camaraderie and unity, you know what? We're going to start winning more and we'll, and we'll lose less often. And even when we do lose, there's an opportunity to learn more. Right? You see that in, in sports. You need to carry that into life. Like, let's apply that to our real lives. Don't view people like, how are they going to advance my platform you will always crash and burn and go on to the next, the next team, the next person. View people as eternal souls who you can help advance. And that makes an eternity of difference. One more thing on selfish ambition, and it's pretty predictable. I even, um, I even hate to tell you how this is going to end, but verse 50 then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. Oh, yeah, I, I already read that part. He, uh, he burned the whole tower down. Yeah, of course he did. Everyone died. It's, when it's all about you, you will believe that it's dependent upon me to protect what is mine. A lot of people have stress and anxiety because of that exact thing. It's all up to me to protect what is mine. I got to keep my kids safe. I got to keep this right. I got to do this perfectly. Otherwise, it's going to all fall apart, and it's all on me, and I'm stressed out, and I can't even really function anymore. Right? Ever been there? When you put everything on yourself, it will eventually be your own downfall. Selfish ambition will take things from bad to worse because selfish ambition not only leads to discontentment, it eventually leads to destruction. So that's Abimelech. There's not really anything good we can say about him. That is literally it. There's no redeeming qualities in this guy. Now, in chapter 10, 
We have two, oh, I did, I did forget to read the part where he gets up to this tower and a, a woman drops a big stone on his head and he died, okay? That, that was how he ended. In chapter 10, we have a transitional passage here. Um, we have two more judges coming in, Tola and Jair. And again, the grace of God saves the people from themselves. But in verse 6 of chapter 10, the cycle repeats itself. And this is a, this is a chapter that actually goes into something that we talked about last week, where the people sounded like they repented, but they really weren't repenting at all. It was just, I'm sorry for my circumstances, and God, I want you to change my circumstances. I did a podcast, this is what my po- this is one of the pieces of my podcast. I did a podcast this week, um, and it was centered on Judges, Judges 10, and we really went into true repentance and forgiveness and what that actually looks like in your life, similar to what I talked about last week with Gideon. Um, but we're going to move on to part two of the message now. I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on this next character as we did on Shechem leaders, the leaders of Shechem and Abimelech. Um, But if we all felt the darkness of chapter 9 was horrific, and as bad as the Abimelech era was, I have really sad news. Like, chapters 11 and 12 are actually worse. This is why we're doing this all in one sermon, okay? (laughs) And this is really where the title comes from, Delving into Hell on Earth. I'm not going to read these two chapters. I'll leave that up to you in your own time if you desire to do that. But I do want to show you how these two stories are connected. And it's our third and final point this morning. Things go from bad to worse when leaders fail, when selfish ambition runs rampant, and when the, when the world absolutely corrupts the culture so much that God's people are distorted and ruined. When God's people fall in line with the worldly culture around them. So point three is worldly decay. And we have our next person here, Jephthah. Now, this is a very sick, messed up story. A lot of people struggle with this story, and for some, it's even a hurdle for their faith. So let me explain what happens. You have the people of Israel falling into sin again. They've disobeyed God. They've rejected him. They've, they've worshipped idols again. After the good judges, they went right back to their old ways. And... The Ammonites are ready to fight. The Ammonites are ready to take over again. And, they're, and in verse 17 of chapter 10, the Israelite camp and the Ammonite camp, they know where this is headed. War is coming. So the men of Gilead are searching for a man who will lead them in battle and beyond. They know they need someone who's tough. They don't have very many leaders in this nation right now, right? Like, there's not a lot of strong men. So we're going to go look for this roughneck guy who we know could win a battle. That's, that's their thinking. Jephthah is an unsurprising, surprising choice. <laughs> Just like Gideon, Jephthah is a mighty warrior and also similar to Gideon's son Abimelech, his mother was <clears throat> a prostitute this time. So this is not who you would expect, but God has shown us through this book to expect the unexpected. This is a very dark time. And he's not using the Ivy League pedigree here. Sometimes he uses a person with a train wreck of a home and emotional baggage and a police record. Enter Jephthah, okay? This is who we have. He's more like a crime boss than a deliverer. When you read this, he was driven out of his home at a very young age by his half-brothers. He's in the wilderness. He's attracted a band of worthless fellows. I don't want to meet any of those people. 
So the romantic way to look at Jephthah is he's just a pirate, a pirate figure. But any way you slice it, he is a product of a very broken world and a broken family and an absolute corrupt culture that's, that suffocated the life out of him. And he's the one they go to because they know what kind of fight they have on their hands. So Jephthah, the outcast, he's not a part of society. And they come to him. And in verse 7, he calls them out on this. He's like, you're only coming to me because you need me right now. They hated him. But they came to him anyway. And he says, well, if if I'm going to do this, it's going to be my way. I'm going to be the leader, even beyond. Oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just, just, Just beat these people. You can do it, whatever, yeah. And again, nothing has really changed. And so Jephthah takes control, and he immediately goes into diplomacy. He's a shrewd, shrewd negotiator. Um, he gives three arguments to prove God's people are in the right and that, that Ammon is out of line. But the king of Ammon dismisses all of those with no response. He, he made a historical case. He made a theological case, even a legal precedent. None of that matters. King of Ammon, he's, he doesn't care. He's going to fight. This is who they're dealing with. More selfish ambition, more chaos. And with diplomacy exhausted, here comes the war. And in Judges 11, verse 29, this is where it can get confusing for people. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. This is where a lot of people get hung up because after the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he makes a horrific vow to the Lord. So if you're just reading this, you're like, what is going on? If you don't understand the context, in Judges, of this whole, like everything we've seen, what's going on here, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon this person to be the deliverer, that does not mean that this person is walking with Christ. This, this person is not filled with the Spirit, and, and they have their head on their shoulders, and they actually have the right motives. Like, that's not what's going on at all. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah because God was going to win the battle. And as soon as that happened, the victory was sealed. That's, that's what that's telling us. But Jephthah makes this vow, and he says, oh, well, you can just read it, verse, verse 34 and 35. Actually, don't read that yet. Um, let me see here. Makes a vow to the Lord. I'll tell you the vow in a second. God didn't ask him to make the vow. Keep that in mind. He doesn't need to make the vow. All he needs to really do is act in obedience. Leave the result up to God. But he's complicating this whole thing by making a vow to the Lord. If God grants me this victory, which we already know he will, then I will sacrifice to the God to God the first thing to come out of my house when I return in triumph. Now, people have tried to say, oh, well, maybe it was an animal. Like, no, no, it's not that. Why would the animal be coming out of his house? I know people are trying, like, with good intentions. Some people are even looking at this, the context of this whole thing and saying, oh, maybe it was his daughter's virginity. That's what he's going to sacrifice, like, her, the fact that she will never be able to marry. No, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to make this sound good, but, like, Look, he's ready to sacrifice one of his servants, one of his human servants or slaves in his home. That's what he's doing. In verse 34, 
Look what happens. I kind of already gave it away. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances, and she was his only child besides her, and he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. What? For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. So he kills his own daughter because of this vow. How tragic. What is going on? Jephthah has clearly been deeply desensitized to violence by the atrocities and the cruelty of the pagan culture around him. This is the most vivid and horrible example of how even God's people who can profess faith in God can hold on to some truth about God, yet let the world squeeze them into its mold. Everything about what Jephthah is doing here is pagan. But he's talking about God and he's talking to God. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Jephthah was the product of a corrupt and broken world, and he let that coexist with his other true beliefs. And we see this as a... This is obviously horrible, right? And I want you to just pause and just step back. And I, I know no one's going to this extreme, of course not. But just step back and think, can I have some of these same heart motives? Has the world influenced me? Because, because it was the pagan thing to do, to offer a sacrifice to appease the God so you could get, his, so you could get him to shine favor upon you. That was totally the world. That was, that was never from God. God offers grace freely. He, he bestows it upon you. He pours upon you grace upon grace. And when God says it's going to be done, I'm giving you my spirit. The victory is yours. Go out and obey me. He means go out and obey. Why are you complicating this? He was, he was listening to what his culture taught him. And when we listen to the world around us, rather than just anchor ourselves in the truth of God's word, devastating things happen. What does God say about life? God says that life begins at conception. We are woven together in our mother's womb, right? Yet even professing Christians listen to the lies of the world and they support abortion. If you're struggling with that, if you have doubts about that, like I would love to have a conversation with you further on something like that. This, similarly with this one, what, what does God's word say about homosexuality? I want to be very sensitive with this because I know people struggle with same-sex attraction, but... God's word is very clear. We all have a sin nature. We all struggle in different ways. And God's word really couldn't be more clear. In Romans 1, it's unnatural. It's contrary to nature. It's shameless. It's in defiance of God's created order. And it's the heart of selfish ambition and pride and pragmatism, according to Romans 1. So you have to, you have to look at that, and you have to be real with that, and not let the world 
influence how you look at it. What does God say about any kind of sex? It's for one man, it's for one woman in the covenant of marriage. That's God's way. That's the best way. That's, that's how you will thrive. We can't listen to what the world says about that and let that shape our beliefs on that. Romans 12 wouldn't warn us of this if it wasn't a real threat. Secondly, Jephthah was not only infected by the pagan moral codes, but also the pagan works righteousness understanding of God's character. Yeah, I already mentioned, human sacrifice was how you could buy off a pagan god. A pagan worshiper did human sacrifice to say, let you show you how impressed and awed I am of your power. But the God of the Bible only wants one kind of human sacrifice, a self-sacrifice of offering your heart to the Lord, of making him the Lord of your life, of every area of your life. And even that, when you say, God, you are my, like, I am yours, you are mine, here I am, I love you, I love what you've done for me, like that's so much different. That's not about securing his favor, that's just a response to his love. Because Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You're appealing there because of the mercy of God. Like what he did for me on the cross. Jesus gave his life for me. He forgave me so I can forgive others. Like you see the motivation is out of love of what God has done for you. It's not to appease him. It's because he loved me, and I can't help but love others because of this. i got to share this. Jephthah thought the Lord needed to be impressed, bought and controlled by a lavish, sacrificial gift. Oh, no, no, that's not how our God works. And this is where we can also, in our minds, get off track just a little bit. We can think, I have to perform for God. I have to do these great things for God so God can be happy with me and bless me. You see that in your own life sometimes? God freely gives grace and mercy. And the tragedy is that God has already decided to save his sinful people. God already decided to use Jephthah to do it. And we could say here, okay, well, fine, all right, I get that, I see it, but why does this guy still keep this horrific vow? What is he still doing? Again, the issue here is Jephthah seems to have no concept of God's grace. He sees God basically like he sees the pagan gods, a being whose favor can be earned through flattery and lavish sacrifices. And he realizes that his rash vow has ruined his life. He doesn't just confess it, and say, God, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and break the vow and save his daughter. Like That's what he should have done, right? He made a mistake. He should have never made that vow. God, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Why can't he just do that? Well, the answer is the same for him as it can be for us. He, he didn't trust God. He, had his, he has an incorrect view of God. He has a horrible view of his true father. He is trapped by his mistrust of God, and he seems to believe that God will strike him down if he doesn't keep his rash vow. Do you ever look at God that way? If I don't perform for him, if I don't do right, God's going to be upset with me. 
This is the same pagan works righteousness view of God that led him to make the vow in the beginning, in the first place. So what can you make of this story as you insert yourself into this? Well, I think I speak for myself and all of us when I say we are far more affected by our culture than we think. It's so easy for us to look at Jephthah, this horrible person, and just go, what on earth, man? What are you doing? This isn't how God works. God is never for human sacrifice. God teaches value in the sanctity of human life all the way back to Genesis. We are made in his image. But Jephthah was blind to all of that because, in part, the culture around him was skewing his true view of God. He didn't know his God on a deep enough level to actually be able to block out all of the influences of his pagan culture. What lies from culture are influencing your views? Ask yourself that. This is partly how things devolve into hell on earth. It's how it goes from bad to worse. How has your culture influenced you? How much money do you spend on yourself? Think about the things that you prioritize with your time and your talent and your treasure and your energy. Is it a product of your culture? Or are you being transformed by the renewal of your mind to discern what is the will of God? Secondly, do you struggle to believe in a God of grace? We talked about this last week. But God's grace is so radical that we sometimes have a hard time accepting it. He's not like us. In the Garden of Eden, the first lie that the serpent spun was to make humans disbelieve God had their best interests in mind. Since then, we have always felt that we have to control God, to pay God, to deserve his blessing. That we can't simply trust God to love and bless us. Bless us. We really can't. We really don't have to do anything. You really have to do absolutely nothing. You look to Jesus. You believe in his sacrifice on the cross, his shed blood for your sin. You trust in that, and you receive grace. Yeah, it doesn't make sense in this life. It doesn't make sense in the business world. It doesn't make sense for a lot of us. But if you truly believe in the radical grace of God, how much will it change your life? How much more rest and peace will you have? It's not all on me. I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to perform. I don't have to have to solve all these problems. You know what? God's, there's God's grace for that. He's going to cover it with grace. There's a lot of bad things that could happen to all of us if it were not for the grace of God that we deserve to happen to us. How much less anxiety would you have if you really believed God was completely committed to me to love me and to bless me and to do what's best for me because I'm his child and he created me and he has a plan for me. He gave me that personality. The rest of chapter 12, we see more problems with Jephthah. I'm going to fly through this. Um, But just like with Gideon, the men of Ephraim, were angry that they missed out on the, on the parade, okay? Like, they wanted to have the glory in that battle. Um, and they go further than complaining about it this time. Now they threaten Jephthah's life, of course. Same song, different verse. An ugly, another ugly scene where we see Jephthah justify his position. And this is another sad thing. I mean, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But before Jephthah battled Ammon, 
the Ammonites, like he went through this whole, like we have all these verses on like his discussion, right? He's, like, he's a negotiator. Well, like, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Like he, he gives them the benefit of the doubt. He goes out of his way to explain his position. And then when his own people, like the people of God, have a problem with him, there's none of that. <laughs> there's no discussion at all. It's just, you're wrong, we're going to fight. Let's duke it out. He gives more grace and patience to the world than he even did to God's people. And this is a really sad component of even Christianity to this day. We, we can show more grace to the world than we even can our own. You have YouTube channels and you have denominations and you have, you know, Christian organizations and universities that are all about fighting and bickering and getting their way and just, just, just no, no grace at all. You're wrong. We're going to fight. We're going to tear you down. No benefit of the doubt. I don't see that coming from Christ. So by the end of chapter 12, Jephthah too was doing the same things we saw from the bramble bush. Bimelech, um, yeah, Abimelech, same thing he did. With, that's the bramble bush, Abimelech. But Jephthah slaughters 42,000 Ephraimites. 42,000. The world's influence corrupted this man who God was using. And, uh, and that's how we devolve in, into hell on earth. Poor leadership, selfish ambition, worldly influence. And you're like, David, this has been a really heavy sermon. Can we please move on? <laughs> I know, we've gone over it all. That's, that we're going to end it right there with the negatives. And I want to give you some hope. I hope you see how close to reality, though, close to home, all of this is for us. We're not that, none of us are that far, really, in our hearts from some of these same things. All of these are threats to, to our own sinful heart. But in closing, let's just talk about what it looks like for you going forward. Because we all want peace and joy, right? We want peace and joy. We don't want a situation like this to ever get close to us. We want to enjoy life, not to see it crumble and corrode like we're seeing here in Judges. But the first step in going that direction of the downward cycle is to think, I'm beyond this. This would never happen to me. In your own heart, you are prone to wander. We all are. And the longer you allow the elements of pride and selfish ambition to breathe, the stronger they will grow. So ask, am I, who am I leading? Am I leading anyone? Even if you are a seventh grader right now, you can be leading someone. By loving someone, right? Think about where selfish ambition leads you. Think about how you are treating people. And are you a leader that has ethics and integrity? It's far too easy to let power go to your head. It's very easy to think about how this benefits me more than serving people. To lead well, you, you have to trust God. You have to trust God enough to allow him to do the right thing and get your hands off of it, even if someone doesn't understand you. 
You have to trust God enough to speak the truth and obey God and trust him with the results. A couple weeks ago, uh, my wife Julie did something just like this. She, she stuck her neck out and she said some very difficult things in a very loving way with the right motives. And it wasn't easy to do. But she loved enough to say what needed to be said. That's self-sacrificing, humble leadership. And it may not bear immediate results, right? But it's actually the kind of things that you do that will bear good fruit down the road. So how do you teach your students? How do you parent your children? How do you interact with that person who's below you on the food chain in the workplace? When you care more about the heart than you care about the bottom line, that's when you are going to make a difference for eternity. And that's when you're going to show them Christ. So here's how these two things connect. These two different stories with these two different guys. Don't let the selfish ambition and the worldly influence affect the way you think and act. And if you have a child, you have to lead your child in your home. You can't just hand them a screen and say, hey, go figure it out. You really think your kid has the discipline and the ability to handle that kind of temptation? When you're outside and you're enjoying the great outdoors and everybody's participating in an event, one of the saddest things for me is when I see a kid just have a phone and staring at a screen. Like, you're just, what are you, what are, what are you long-term doing for your kid? Like, how are you leading them? How are you teaching them to interact with other people and, and to be selfless? Or are you just teaching them, yeah, just consume what you want to consume whenever you want to consume it? You have to set the culture in your home and determine what kind of environment you are going to allow. Who are you going to let dictate the atmosphere in your life? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be other people's influence that don't know God? How much of the world are you going to let flow into your home? If a screen is on, how long is it on and for what purpose? What kinds of conversations are taking place in your home? Is disrespect allowed? Is self-centeredness allowed to run rampant? A leader sets the tone. And you can't just hand your kid a screen and shirk responsibility. What kind of entertainment are you going to allow and what are you going to talk about? I'm not saying you have to shelter your kid and, and, and do that. You never have any fun? No, talk about the world. Talk about the problems that you see. Talk about real life. But don't let the world's culture dictate. Worship team, you can come up here. The answer to all the problems that we see in these chapters, this is what I really want you to hear. The answer to these problems is Jesus Christ. The answer to poor leadership is Jesus Christ. The only way to cure self-centeredness is found in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, our loving, self-sacrificial Savior. And the only way to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
Draw near to God as he draws near to you and let everything else fade away. I want to close this message with hope. So please turn in your Bible. Go ahead and stand up. Turn in your Bible with me to James chapter 3. And I'm going to read from James 180 degree opposite scenario of what Judges 9 through 12 contained. What I'm going to read here in James chapter 3 is unlocked by our Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to see selfish ambition in this passage. We're going to see worldliness in this passage. You're even going to hear something in this passage that sounds a little familiar to Jotham's proclamation in Judges 9 and just makes me think maybe there's a chance James was reading Judges 9 before he, before he wrote this. There's some similarities. It's up to you to decide. But James was led of the Holy Spirit to write this. And these are the words of hope that I want to end with. James 3, verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you... Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Thanks for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions about the topic of this sermon or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.